Abraham Lincoln warned that the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Would you like to know what's being taught in today's classrooms? Welcome to Say What? with attorney Mark Schneider and Pastor George Roska Jr. They'll explore the issues facing children, parents, and society as a result of the public schools and the forces behind them. Say What? is the radio program of Protect Our Kids, which seeks to inform and equip concerned citizens about the looming crisis in American education. So listen in as your hosts, Mark Schneider and George Roska Jr., unpack the issues and organizations affecting our children. And now here's your hosts, Mark Schneider and George Roska Jr. Well, hello everyone. I'm Mark Schneider, the founder and president of Protect Our Kids, and I want to welcome you to today's episode of Say What? where we talk about the threats to our children in the public school system. This week, my co-host, Pastor George Roska, is enjoying a well-deserved rest with his family, but will return next time. On today's episode, I'd like to talk about how the public schools are indoctrinating our children. It's a loaded term, I know, so before I tell you why I think it fits, let me start by citing a few anecdotes. Back in 1987, a famous professor at the University of Chicago, Alan Bloom, published a book entitled The Closing of the American Mind, How Higher Education Has Failed Democracy and Impoverished the Souls of Today's Students. In the opening pages of the book, he makes this assertion. If there's one thing a professor can be absolutely certain of, every incoming freshman believes or says he believes the truth is relative. Now, that's quite a statement especially when you consider that it was written 34 years ago. Back then, incoming freshmen were products, of course, of the public schools in the 1960s and 70s, a time many will recall as a period of enormous societal upheaval in America. And since then, of course, we've had several more generations of school kids come through the system. The question is, As a society, where has this led us? Well, recently there was an article that ran in the Wall Street Journal by R.R. Reno, senior editor of the thought-provoking publication, First Things. The title of the piece is, Why I Stopped Hiring Ivy League Graduates. Among other things, Reno opined that the graduates from these vaunted institutions, at least the ones he's had direct experience with, are thin-skinned narcissists and are seen to exhibit what he calls naked aggression. His words, not mine. He goes on to write, and I quote, Today's elite students aren't going to schools led by courageous adults. Deprived of good role models, they're less likely to mature into good leaders themselves. They've been socialized, he goes on, to panic over pseudo-crises. Talk of systemic racism and fixation on pronouns inculcate in young people an apocalyptic urgency, a mentality that often disrupts the workplace and encourages navel-gazing about diversity, inclusion, and other ill-defined notions that are far removed from the main work of my organization, which, he says, is good writing, good editing, and good arguments. Couple this with the recent response Apple received from a letter sent out by its CEO, Tim Cook, 
informing the company's workers that they were expected to come back to the office three days a week beginning in September. Were Apple's employees, most of whom are very highly paid professionals, uh, delighted at the prospect of being able to finally get out of their homes and resume personal interaction with their peers? Not hardly. In a response to Cook's letter and representing hundreds of employees, they wrote, Over the last year, we've often felt not just unheard, but at times actively ignored. There's been no messaging acknowledging our contradictory feelings, and this feels dismissive and invalidating. (laughs) Okay, these are admittedly anecdotes, but it does appear that there may be some truth to the well-worn pejorative snowflake. And more seriously, when you combine this with the other societal metrics, like the increase in urban lawlessness, the corporate cancel culture, drag queen, drag queen story hours at public libraries, the pandemic of gender dysphoria among our young girls and escalating teen suicides. And it's hard to avoid the rather grim conclusion that American society is devolving in ways we've never before witnessed. And if that's true, perhaps it's time we look at the forces that have led to these conditions. What are public schools teaching our children? Is there a specific worldview that they're imposing upon the minds of future generations? If there is, what is that worldview? Well, this raises the question of indoctrination, a strong term, but does it fit? Well, let's see. According to the Cambridge Dictionary, The definition of indoctrination is the process of repeating an idea or belief to someone until they accept it without criticism or question. Let's unpack that a little bit. So indoctrination involves a deliberate process of repetition, usually by someone in authority, to get its subjects to accept uncritically whatever it is that's being advanced. And such indoctrination can come from one or more forms, religious, political, ideological, or all three at the same time. Is what the public schools are teaching our children a form of indoctrination? Well, on college campuses, at least, there can be little doubt that only one worldview is tolerated today. In fact, colleges are the furthest thing from being centers of genuine critical thinking, where competing ideas and beliefs are discussed and debated civilly. We're so accustomed to conservatives and Western ideas being canceled that we just sort of accept it. Our universities have been described as secular seminaries, and I think that's a fitting description. Christian households of college-bound children must work very hard to arm them against the inevitable onslaught of what they know is a coming secular orthodoxy. And sadly, most parents will fail, as the majority of confessing teens are seen to leave the faith during college, with some reporting the percentage to be well over 80%. And now, this same orthodoxy is beginning to invade K-12 through public education. 
At Protect Our Kids, we label this emerging orthodoxy the triple threat because it has three interrelated components, radical sex ed, critical race theory, and historical revisionism. Take sex ed, or what's formally known as comprehensive sexuality education, and which exists in some form today in over 30 states and counting. Beginning in kindergarten, kids are now instructed to believe and accept that biology and gender are not significantly related, that both sexual orientation and gender identity exist along a spectrum, and that one's feelings determine your identity. Books like Who Are You? tell kindergartners that their parents had to make a guess about their gender by looking at their body parts. Oh, poor parents. By third grade, they're taught to consider that their own gender may not be the sex they were born with, and to think about taking on a new one. Older kids are encouraged to seek the help of professional counseling and medical intervention for puberty blockers and eventually cross-sex hormones. At the same time, they're warned that their parents' conventional beliefs on sex and gender are what teachers are trained to label as negative stereotypes, and signs of spiritual abuse. Kids in the public schools are today being taught to explore sexual behavior with their peers at younger and younger ages, and in the most graphic language imaginable. They're even trained to negotiate consent for sexual favors, even though in California having sex with a minor is a statutory crime. They also learn that if there's a contest of wills between child and parent, the state will step in. Are you a child in need of medical treatment for a sexually transmitted disease or an unwanted pregnancy, and you don't want your parents to know about it? The public schools will do their their best to make sure that they don't. Kids can even, in some cases, consent to mental health services without their parents having to approve or even be informed. As far as what's being taught behind closed classroom doors or Zoom screens, as the Ninth Circuit ruled in Fields versus Palmdale School District, when it comes to the right to control the upbringing of your children, that right ends at the school door. Now think about this for a moment. You drop your child off at 8 in the morning, and they're there on campus until mid-afternoon. And this happens five days a week, so that day after day, month after month, year after year, authority figures are conveying these messages as if they were the gospel, which for the public schools, they become. Only it's a false gospel. And aside from formal classroom instruction, kids also have to contend with an increasingly woke campus culture. Virtually every month of the school year, there is a SOGI-related event of some kind. SOGI stands for Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity, and is relentlessly pushed upon children through celebrations like Coming Out Day, Transgender Awareness Day, Harvey Milk Day, Transgender Appreciation Day, Pride Month, and this is just a partial list. But of course, It doesn't end there. 
because the second threat to our kids is now coming in the form of critical race theory, which is rapidly taking over the public schools. According to this new orthodoxy, American society is in the grip of a Marxist class struggle. Instead of the bourgeoisie versus proletariat, this new conflict is between oppressors and oppressed. If you're light-skinned, you're an oppressor and therefore guilty by association. If you're dark-skinned, you're one of the oppressed and a victim. In the Cupertino School District, light-skinned children are guided in exercises to deconstruct their white identities into one of several categories, with labels like white supremacist, white confessional, white traitor, or one of five others. For example, if you fall into the white voyeurism class, it means that you, quote, would not challenge a white supremacist. You desire non-whiteness because it's interesting and pleasurable, and you seek to control the consumption and appropriation of non-whiteness. <laughs> if you're not sure what all that means, just bear in mind that these exercises are intended for grade schoolers. Dark-skinned children, on the other hand, are taught that they're helpless victims and to distrust and confront their lighter-skinned peers. CRT teaches that because of America's experience with slavery, it is systematically racist and therefore inherently corrupt. In critical race theory, even objective truth is discredited as a Western concept where math and science are considered tools of the oppressor class and therefore not to be trusted. The University of California recently got rid of the one objective standard to measure the knowledge and academic aptitude of its applicants. As a result, both the SAT and ACT have now been dropped. The California Department of Ed has recently completed its new mathematics framework, and which has the tagline, Teaching Towards Social Justice. This is the document meant to guide K-12 teachers on how to teach math. One book it recommends is A Pathway to Equitable Math Instruction, Dismantling Racism in Mathematics Instruction. If you're perhaps wondering what math and racism have to do with one another, well, you're probably a racist or so the new orthodoxy would have you believe. Finally, the third threat to our children in the public schools is historical revisionism. There's an old Soviet joke that says, the future we know, it's the past that keeps changing. And America's past is changing, at least throughout our public school curriculums. According to the new orthodoxy, America's founding didn't happen in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence or even in 1788 when the Constitution was ratified, but in, the, but in 1619 when, according to the 1619 Project, the first slaves were brought to the shores of Virginia. The 1619 Project was published by the New York Times in collaboration with Nicole Hannah-Jones and the Pulitzer Center. And according to its many authors, slavery and the cotton plantation are what are responsible for virtually everything that's made America exceptional. It's economic might, electoral system, 
public health and education, mortgages, fiat currency, Wall Street, our legal system, even our diet and popular music. Notwithstanding, according to the authors, our founding ideals of liberty and equality were false when they were written. The 1619 Project is what's called a long journalism uh, uh, endeavor, and it's, it's well over 100 pages long. But there's not a single footnote or supporting reference in the document for its many sweeping claims. And like many good-hearted Americans, you may want to afford the writers the benefit of the doubt. American slavery is, after all, a historical fact. But as far as the project's sweeping claims go, they have been completely discredited by the National Association of Scholars, as well as America's most regarded historians. People like James McPherson, Sean Wilentz, James Oakes, Gordon Wood, and many others. Black intellectuals are similarly appalled by the 1619 Project and have formed alliances to refute it, like the 1776 Unites Project, led by Bob Woodson and other scholars, including Wilfred Riley, John McWhorter, Clarence Page, and a dozen others. The recently published book Fault Lines by Vody Baucom is equally critical and an excellent expose of the 1619 Project's core fallacies. Yet none of this matters to the public schools, teachers' unions, or other groups intent on teaching it to our children. The School Superintendents Association, the nation's largest, put out a statement declaring, quote, We are living in a time of obscene inequities, and merely trying to compensate is not enough. Now is the time for all educational leaders to intensify our commitment to address inequities and work to dismantle systemic racism. Leading a system-wide effort requires that we ensure that cultural responsiveness permeates all levels of the district, from teaching and learning to buses and buildings, to all levels of professional development and community engagement. So it ought not to be a surprise that curriculums based on these historical lies are spreading throughout the nation's schools. In fact, unless you've been off the grid, you've no doubt already heard or seen some of the videos of outraged parents confronting school districts over what the schools are foisting upon innocent and fragile minds. Last year, the Pulitzer Center claimed that the 1619-based curriculums were already in some 4,500 schools and counting, and in all 50 states. What that number is today is anyone's guess, but state educators are rapidly getting on board. California's Department of Education recently published its 800-page ethnic studies framework, its name for critical race theory and historical revisionism. And legislatures in the state are now doing their best to make it mandatory for students to graduate from high school. But California Ethnic Studies program goes well beyond the moral and historical malignancies of critical race theory and historical revisionism, if that's possible, by overtly promoting a form of religious paganism, which sees divinity in nature 
If you're not familiar with it, paganism is a religion with both poly and pantheistic aspects and believes in magic as a way to bring about change. The terms Mother Nature and Gaia are familiar pagan terms. It also believes in ancestral worship. Practitioners sometimes build family altars to facilitate worshiping their forebears. How is this connected with California's ethnic studies? Well, as first reported by Christopher Rufo in the City Journal, California Ethnic Studies encourages schools to guide children in performing pagan religious exercises, like the unity chant, and to enlist Aztec deities like Tezcatlipoca and Hunabku in song and dance. In one such song, titled Inlac Ek Affirmation, one stanza reads, We're here to transform the world we're spiraling, rotating, and revolving in. Giving thanks daily, Teslazo Kamati. Giving thanks daily, Teslazo Kamati. Healing and transforming as we're evolving in this universe. Universe of Hunab Ku. Hunab Ku, which is supposed to be repeated twice. Hunab Ku is the Aztec. God for one being and head of the Mayan pantheon. It seems that as far as separation of church and state, it appears not to apply to this it appears to not to apply to secular or pagan religions, but only to the Judeo-Christian worldview. So there you have it. Radical sex ed, critical race theory, historical revisionism have together formed a new orthodoxy that is taking hold in our public schools. If there's any glimmer of hope, it's that many voices are sounding the alarm. Recently, former U.S. Attorney General William Barr gave a speech where he called out what's being taught in the public schools as a new religion and referring to our public schools as secular progressive madrasas. This militantly Militantly secular indoctrination, he said, is in my mind the greatest threat that religious liberty faces today, and this coming from our nation's highest legal official. In Nevada, William Clark, a mixed-race high school student, objected to being forced in class to make professions about his racial, gender, and religious identities, whereupon he was threatened with failing grades, having his graduation held up, and being coerced by school officials, officials to unlearn his Judeo-Christian principles that he'd been taught by his black mother. Fortunately, William's mother, Gabrielle Clark, had the fortitude to stand up for both her and her son's rights and has sued the school district. But you can be sure that similar coercive tactics are being played out across the school system that you never, ever hear about. Let's look again at the definition of indoctrination. The process of repeating an idea or belief to someone until they accept it without criticism or question. Are the public schools indoctrinating our children? Protect our kids' beliefs that they are. What can you do? Well, first and foremost, pray. 
at the root of this is a spiritual battle that will, and that will be where it is either won or lost. So if ever there were a time to get on our knees, now is that time. Secondly, get your kids out of the public school system if there's any way that you can. There's no better reason to sacrifice for our children. Number three, by all means, pursue your legal rights. This is a subject that we're going to be addressing in the next couple of episodes. And finally, become a parent activist. Follow the example of Gabriel Clark. Organize others and take back your school. After all, you're paying for it. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but please do subscribe to our website at protectourkidsnow.org and be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Say What? Until then, I'm Mark Schneider for Protect Our Kids. You've been listening to Say What, the radio ministry of Protect Our Kids, where they seek to inform and equip concerned citizens about the crisis in American public education and the forces working against our children. Join us at this same time every Saturday as attorney Mark Schneider and Pastor George Roscoe Jr. unpack the issues so that we can better safeguard our nation's children. For more information about this program or Protect Our Kids, email the show at info at protectourkidsnow.org. That's info at protectourkidsnow.org. And join Mark and George right here next week at this same time for another episode of Say What. 